Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. So the next thing I think we need to do is Satan accuses believers before God. Okay, so... um, let me motor through this to show you a passage. So in Revelation chapter 12, 10 through, uh, 10 through 11, it says, then I heard a, vo- a loud voice from heaven, or saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who what? Accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. Now, the timing of this is obviously the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan is finally cast out after he tries to make a run on the throne again, and Michael and the archangels fight him back, and then he's assigned to earth for the last three and a half years. Okay, but the thing I want to point out is what he is doing in heaven right now and what what he has access. So he has access to go back and forth from our earth, from space, to uh, the third abode, which is what we call heaven. And so he can interface with God. So people say, well, what, what is he doing before God? Well, he is accusing us before God. So, so if you remember, we've talked a little bit about this, but n- number one, this goes in with the understanding of Satan still has access to God. I know that sounds weird. And many people will say, well, I thought... Um, God can't look on evil, God can't, uh, you know, he's so holy, he can't have evil in his presence, or anything like that. And you've probably heard people say that, but it's actually, when you you see those passages that that says that God is too holy to look on evil, um, he can't have evil in his presence, or things like that, those are euphemisms that refer to how holy God is. Okay? It's not saying he can't look upon evil. In fact, he looks upon it all day long. Because he's, he, he's omniscient. So he sees all. So he's seeing evil being perpetrated right now. So it's not that he can't look on him. That's a euphemism, a Hebraism, that, says that, that speaks to his character of how holy he is. So that, yes, he is holy. And yes, evil can be in his presence. Satan is. Um, and so Satan goes back and forth. Just like with Job, he, he has the ability to, to, to talk with God. And again, he's only f- completely kicked out at the midpoint of the tribulation, which still is future. Okay, so now let's get to the issue of accusing us. If you're saved, what can he accuse you of? You see what I'm saying? If you're saved, what is he accusing you of? Still being a sinner? That you're not really saved? Is he? Oh no, what is he saying to God? He's saying that Bill is not saved because he's not true enough. But wouldn't God know if you're a hypocrite or not? So why would he accuse you of that? That we won't be faithful? That he will curse you to your face? 
if you allow certain things to happen in his life. Being responsible for the crucifixion. Okay. Okay. Let's accuse him of this. Yeah, so if you take this away, what will he do? If you take health away, if you take money away, if you take, um, I don't know, loved ones away, or whatever it might be, right? Um, he could say, I'm accusing Bill because if I take this away from him, he will curse you to your face. That part of it? Possible, yes. Mm-hmm. True. True. So you guys are you're right on your, your assessments. You're right. So you have you bring in the Job understanding, okay, of accusing you. See, Job. So let's. This is one category, okay. So the Job category is the accusation like that Satan gave the Job. He goes skin for skin. You take it away, he's going to curse you. So it's actually he's challenging God. But the real test is coming back to you. So that is going on, okay? That he's really accusing you that, look, if, if he made your life a little bit more rougher, I guarantee you I can make him curse you. I can make him denounce you. I can make him apostatize. Now, he, now think about this. He can't, he, Satan knows he can't take away your salvation. But he can make you apostatize, right? I saw a hand right there. Where are you at? Okay, go for it. That we put other idols before him. And we kind of do that today, even as Christians, because we put our phones. Yeah, so the phone's an idol. Okay. I mean, we put electronics before God all the time. I'm guilty of that myself. Okay. So let's. that's another category. So this is a category that you're referring to of sin. They're in sin. So you have a category of challenging that take things away and they'll curse you. And then there's another category of sin. This believer is now participating in sin. So what does that mean? If you're saved, does that mean you can sin? You're going to sin, but I'm saying, should you sin? No, okay. So if you do... Right. So in this category, what, what Paul has just said is that when a believer is in sin, that's what he's accusing you of in front of the Father. But here's the deal. The accusation is something like this. Okay, you got this person, Joe Blow, doing this. What are you going to do about it? Because he's violating your law. Okay. Now, in justification, all your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. So there's nothing eternally that can happen to you. So what we're dealing with is a temporal punishment and a temporal uh, discipline. Okay, That's where this area goes into. So... Let's say somebody, like you mentioned, is a full-blown idolater, okay? And they won't give the idolatry up. 
that, that, that doesn't have a bearing on their salvation. It has a bearing of whether or not they will face a premature death, which is exactly what James is talking about. James chapter one, verse 21, and James chapter five, verse 20 are the bookends of James that deal with physical death from the death-dealing consequences of sin that is unrepented and unconfessed, okay? So James, many people misinterpret the book of James because they take it in a Calvinistic slant and they think the book is about proof of salvation. It is not about proof of salvation. It is proof of discipleship and what sin can do in the life of the believer because the wages of sin brings premature physical death. So, so when we're talking about a believer in sin and they won't repent, then the principle of death starts operating in them, okay? You're not gonna get ever past the principle, whether saved or unsaved, that the wages of sin is death, okay? It's a twofold death, right? It's a spiritual death, but it's also a physical death. That's the reason we as believers, if we're not raptured, are going to die. It is our sin that actually killed us, that killed our body, if we aren't raptured. Okay, so you have the death-dealing consequences of sin in both a physical way and an eternal way. So since the eternal has been taken care of by Christ, the only thing left then is God to discipline you with either his disciplining hand or to allow the consequences of sin to play itself out and shorten your life. That's what we're talking about, okay? So, again, I'm, I'm gonna refer back to James. James talks about that, um, that once the process of sin starts, he goes through a process that it, it starts in and then it conceives sin, right? Remember, he goes through this whole process, it conceives sin. Let me read it, maybe this will be better and I got the giant Bible out, so I don't have my glasses. So this was a godsend, man. Love it. It's like 20 font. Okay. Um. Come on, come on, come on. There we go. So if you want to follow along, uh, if not, you can just listen. But... Um, Start in uh, uh, chapter one, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Who's he talking to? Unbelievers? No, no he's talking to believers. Hence, this is not a Calvinistic checking if someone is a believer. It is a discipleship issue. Okay. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of his own will, he brought forth the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creation. Okay, then we move on. And then he says, therefore, um, lay aside all filthiness. This is in verse 20, 20 21. And, and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Okay, that passage right there, which is able to save your soul is not dealing with salvation. 
The context is saving from a premature death. And here's the idea. Obedience brings you life, a longer physical life. Disobedience and sin will bring a premature death. That's how it works. And that's what he's trying to say. So the idea of saving a soul, I think the Greek word is psyche, and it's not referring to eternal salvation. It's referring to a physical. Okay, so if we get that down, so he goes, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he goes, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man observing the natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But, the, but, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetting, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Okay, so that's really the theme of all of this. And he goes back, and, he, in, and if I can go back, that's why I wanted to state the theme. And then in verse... 13, he says, let no one say to you that he is tempted. I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does, uh, and he himself, uh, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. And look look at the stages. You're drawn away by your own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, look at that stage. Once it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's another stage. And in sin, when it is full grown, another stage, it brings forth death. So he just told you that this death that he's talking about is premature physical life being extinguished. And how does it happen? First, you're drawn away or enticed. Then you have the desire for it. And then you act on the desire and you sin. And then he goes on and says, and so he's using the idea of giving birth like it's a baby. So the first baby that comes from you is sin. Okay, if you allow that sin to grow and fully develop into maturity, like a human being would grow, then it will issue a death penalty to it. So it doesn't mean that initially, the, the, the first instance you do it will kill you. It just means that if you allow it to continue on and you let it grow, then it has the potentially to shorten your physical life. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, what does it have to do with the accuser of the brethren? Well, we got the Job issue, but then we have the other category issue of unrepentant sin and unconfessed sin. And the fact that you can confess your sin, but then not repent, okay? Now, repentance, 98% of the repentance in, the, in the, the New Testament is about believers repenting, okay? And so that means a change, not only of mind, but a change of behavior when it's with dealing with believers because believers can change their behavior because they have the Holy Spirit, the new nature. They have all the tools available to them, the word of God, and they're obligated to change. It's actually demanded that they change, okay? Again, leaving them with their own free will. Could that be in ca- the case? What tends to happen then is a believer will become deceived. And in that deception, it allows them to sin and thinking the sin is justifiable. 
And when that person is deceived and they think what they're doing is justifiable, that's when that sin is unconfessed, unrepented, and it continues to grow and grow and grow until it eventually gives birth, no, sorry, not gives birth, but develops into a full-fledged human, so to speak. And then death is issued, okay? So what Satan is doing in this situation is saying to the father, you must judge them, you must judge them, you must judge them, okay? And the longer the believer waits to repent and confess those sins, the more opportunity that God's gonna say, you're right, time is up. I am now going to do something physically to that person. And that's what he's trying to do to us. So we're all gonna sin. There's no doubt about that. But what you don't wanna get into is protracted sin that's unconfessed and unrepented because you run the risk of being physically judged by God the Father, according to Hebrews chapter 12. So the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews will say, what earthly father didn't discipline you, right? And he says, how much more will your heavenly father, that's a, that's a rabbinic term of going from the lesser to the greater, how much more than your father, who is perfect in his justice and, and his love for you, will discipline you correctly? And, and so that's what the writer is warning about. So the issue then is, you don't want to give ground for Satan to accuse you because then, eventually, if it's not stopped, it will force the hand of God to do something to you and discipline you in some way. And, you, you know, listen, I, I've talked to plenty of people in counseling that have been disciplined by, by God and taken to the woodshed, and um, they ended up flat on their back after the whipping. And it wasn't pretty. But they will all claim I needed that because I wouldn't wake up. So it happens. Paul, you got a question, brother? Yeah, the question is, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is given to us, uh, and we could grieve the Holy Spirit. Sure. And uh, I think God is patient and loving. He is. He will allow you to suffer these consequences. He'll whisper it first, and he'll use a hammer. Yeah. He'll use whatever it takes. Praise God, he doesn't give up on us. And my no. question is, how, how, did, how would you explain how thankful we should be that we even have the Holy Spirit? <laughs> well, without him, you wouldn't have the power to obey. You just wouldn't have the power to obey. And without the new nature of him regenerating, you wouldn't have the power to obey any, anyway. So that is a twofold thing. That's what the Old Testament saints didn't have. The Old Testament saints like Moses, David, um, David had the Holy Spirit on him, but not in him. Okay, and Moses did the same. He had the Holy Spirit on him, but not in him. Um, now, with us having him in him, in us, that grants us the ability to obey. That means no believer can say, I can't obey that. That's, that's out of my league. No, no, you can't say that. And so that makes you very responsible with what you can do and can't do. And, and so there is no excuse and it takes away that. And truly, because of that, the believer can have victory, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, they lived according to the law. And, and of course, a biblical character like Moses didn't believe the law saved him, but the law guided him in how to live. But here was the problem. The law guided how to live, but the law never gave power to live it. 
Does that make sense? It was a guide, but they, never, they, they could never keep it. The issue in the new covenant is you have the law of the Messiah and you're told how to live and you can keep it. And you can keep it. So that's the, the major difference and that's the blessing we have by the Holy Spirit being in us and also the new nature being regenerated in us um, is that you have the power to obey. And that's huge. And like Paul's saying, it's, it's, it's a massive thing that we have so what do you think the writer of Hebrews says? The writer of Hebrews gives five warnings, but in one of those warnings, he says, hey, look, man, you can get all uh, bent out of shape about what the Old Testament saints did, especially at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go into land. He goes, but really, I'm telling you, you have a greater responsibility than them because of how much you've been given. And so he puts it in, in, back on us and saying, Look, if you mess up in this era with the, all the tools that you have, you're really asking for it. Now, again, God will go as long as he needs to go. He knows how, to, how much grace to extend the believer. He knows how much mercy to extend the believer. And that's where we get the term long-suffering. But long-suffering means at some point he stops long-suffering. It's not forever, right? So if you see a person that just... Year after year doesn't stop. You're, they're just going down the wrong path. That path ends in death at some point. So this is what uh, you know, the writer of James is warning about. This is what a lot of the warnings in Hebrews is about, is that the believer can lose their physical life, or at least, or at least cut it down and, and make it shorter. Now, here's the question that a lot of people ask. Because of, of the Calvinist bent... They say, well, God uh, controls the day I was born and the day I died. Okay, that's true, but that means that I can live any way I want, and then it doesn't matter. God's just going to take me at whatever age he's determined to take me. So then what's this warning about, about the James that, you know, you could die early? What is that about then, if God knows the day you're going to die? How do, you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you put that together and avoid Calvinism? Any ideas? Look, Paul even says, God set, determines where we're born, when we're born, and what part of the world we're born in, right? Acts 17. Can't deny that. It's true. I had no control over that. Nor could you pick your parents, right? You couldn't pick your parents. Your parents were given to you. You may like them or you may not. It's up to you right? But you were given those parents and you were born in a certain area of the globe and maybe you liked it, maybe you don't. You had no control over that. But God put you, according to uh, Acts 17, in the most advantaged position you could have to come to know him. That's why he did what he did. Now I know you're saying, well, I, I can't stand my parents. It still puts you in an advantage, the most advantaged position to come to know him. I know that doesn't make sense, but introspectively, when you start looking at it, it does make sense, and it starts adding up. Okay, but the timing of death. I'll, hope, I'll, I'll, I'll hear people when I do funerals, and they'll say, God needed another angel to help him in his garden. It's totally unbiblical to say things like that, but you know how they, they dress it up, and you know, God needed someone to work on his lawn, or it's just whatever. 
it's a way that, you know, that they, they sympathize with each other. And, and of course, none of that makes sense. But, but, but is it biblical to say God took my family member? God took him. Is that, is that biblical? Because that's what drives people mad in grief. That's why they get mad at God. They, because people will come up to him, well, God wanted him more in heaven. He was more needed in heaven than he was with you. And you tell that to a grieving person, they're like, would you just shut up? You're out of your mind, right? It doesn't work. It's not a good grief thing, right? To say, well, God needed them. What is the answer? If the scriptures are telling you that you, a believer can shorten his life, then what is the issue that God knows the day you're going to die? That's it. So free will is involved in the determination of the day you die. God already knows what you're going to do. He knows if you're going to live an unhealthy life. He knows if you're going to live a sinful life that can cause premature discipline of you. Um, he knows you know, the, if you live a hard life, what it will do to you. He, he knows that, that the majority of people will not do what their doctors tell them to do and by taking their pills and medication, right? I mean, that's the biggest thing. I'm not, again, I, know, I don't trust a lot of doctors, but don't get me wrong. One of the biggest problems with people and their health is they won't do what's prescribed to them. And I think it's like a real high percentage. They won't take their medicine. They won't, they won't do what they need to do. And then they deteriorate because of that or they won't eat right, or whatever that might be. So God actually factors that in to the person's life, and, and all with all those converging factors, he omnisciently knows the day they will die. So that's where God can, can determine the beginning and the end, not that he's saying they will die on this day. He already knows they will die, but their free will plays into that, if that makes sense. So they die according to their free will. Like for instance, I'll give you another example. Um, the, the fifth commandment and the 10 commandments is carried over into the law of the Messiah. And Paul points this out, that you honor your father and mother and the original command in Exodus so that you will have a long life in the land. And Paul tweaks it a little bit under the law of Messiah and says that you will have a long life. So he doesn't relate it to the land for the Gentile church. He relates it to a long life. So with that being said, if you want a longer life physically, then you honor your father and mother. Because the promise attached to that, pa that passage is that you will live long. What does that mean? You can extend your life. Hezekiah extended his life, didn't he? He asked for more life, and what did God grant him? 15 years? So it was, he was supposed to die. God, God says, pack up your stuff, Hezekiah. We're going down. This is it. You're going to die. Hezekiah prays, and the Lord relents and says, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. So what you have to realize is you play a part in the day you die, and your free will plays a part in that. And that's why the warnings are in there, and that's why the blessings are in there that you can live a longer life based on that. So, and again, don't get me wrong. 
someone dies early, you know, don't think, well, it's because, you know, they sinned or something like that. That's Job's friend saying that, right? That's not accurate. We don't know all the factors that are going on there. But um, that's a general principle that you have to keep in your mind. And so, you know, when somebody's body gives out in death, it's because their body gave out on them. Their body couldn't sustain their soul anymore. And the body, the body was racked with the, the, the sin-cursed consequences that dealt death to that body. You know, this is what they say, that doctors even see this, and uh, scientists who you know, study this, there's like a kill switch in humans, and they don't know how it works. And um, I think what they, see, they say is that the human body will regenerate and regenerate about 12 times or something like that. And then when it gets to, I think it's the 12th generation, uh, the regeneration, the body just dies. Now you have the ability to stretch out that, that those 12 cycles or shorten those 12 cycles. But after your 12th one, you just die. There's like a kill switch. It's weird. Well, I know what the kill switch is and so do you. What does scripture say about how long you live? 70 years, anything above that is grace. Right? Some of you are like, so sorry if I scared you. But here's the point though. What, what factor... What factor is being brought, and probably thousands of factors, let's just bring in one factor that would give you more life. Your service to the Lord. That would give you more life. You know why? Because he needs us on the ground doing what we need to do, and that might extend your life. And that's why maybe if you're past the 70 age cutoff, why you're still around. It's because you are blessing the body of Christ in some way and he still wants you to keep at it and keep doing your duty of evangelizing and doing everything. Because I can tell you this, man, you take a vacation, uh, uh, not a vacation, but a retirement from Christianity. Once you hit a certain age and you just back off, you're gonna die quick. You really will. Because at that point, you're just waiting for death. But if you're active and serving and doing like what Caleb did, remember Caleb wanted to take a mountain at 80 years old? That's why he would live a longer time. He was granted that time because he was still useful to the master. And if you stay useful to the master, he'll keep you in the game. And you have to think, think about that. So there's a lot of factors like that. But again, that's one factor to keep you like, keep going, keep living, keep serving. Don't get bedridden. Don't say, I'm not getting out of bed today. Get up, start fighting. Okay, where am I at? I have a question because I had a, I had a daughter who went through cancer from the ages of two to five and then she passed on, but she loved the Lord and witnessed to the nurses in the hospital. And I thought she, you know, she was very useful for the earth. Yeah. Um, but I do sometimes blame myself for, um, you know, the diet that she had and the, the toxic chemicals that we used in the home, like cleaners and stuff like that. So it wasn't her fault, but sometimes I put the blame on myself 
Yeah. Is that, is and, that... and you don't want to do that. What you want to blame is the fall. It's the fall. And that's what most people are suffering with, with why their bodies are breaking down. Not only because of sin nature, but like with a child like that, the sin nature hasn't had a time to decay the body. I mean, what, what is the body? The body continues to grow until what, about age 25, and the brain is fully developed at that point. So 25 is like the optimum for your DNA. That's where, you know, the, the high point of you growing. After 25, it starts declining, right? Okay? So when that situation as a child who has not lived long enough for that sin to decay them that long, you're dealing with a fall issue. And the fall issue has messed up our DNA. It has messed up the way we're built and all that other stuff. And again, I'm not, th- doc- I'm not a doctor, but I'm, I'm coming from, from a spiritual standpoint. The sin nature is, is, is in our DNA. That's why we have missing things in our makeup, right? That's why some of us have uh, predisposed to, to diseases and things of that nature. It's from our genetic makeup. But where's the genetic makeup come from? Adam and Eve. And notice this, uh, to, to, to add some more to this. Do you remember how long the patriarchs lived? Oh my goodness. They were almost living up to a thousand years, which is the length of the messianic age, okay? So you had people dying in their 900s and 800s and, and 700s. Why? Genetically, they were closer to where the, the, the perfect gene pool was with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had no genetic flaws, right? And so what, what, what a lot of creation scientists say, like you know, Ken Ham and, and those kinds of, uh, uh, Henry Morris and those kinds of people, they have noticed that because they were so close to the original gene, they had pure genes. I mean, their, their genes were excellent and that's what allowed them to live a long time. Also, the environment was better because it was pre-flood environment. Let, you know, less radiation, all kinds of stuff going on that allow these people to live a very long time. But here's an interesting thing. How come incest was allowed all the way up until the day of Moses? What's the problem if it, with incest today? You have birth defects. So by the time Moses writes the law of Moses he's the first one to forbid incest of close relatives. So guys like Henry Morris and, and uh, Answers in Genesis, all those guys will conclude that by that time, the gene pool had gotten so bad that it wasn't healthy for the human population to continue to, the, to do incest. Because who did, who, I mean, for goodness sakes, who did Cain get his wife? Where was his wife coming from? It's probably his sister or cousin or something like that. It was a close relative. And that's how it was pre-flood. And then after the flood till the days of Mo- uh, Moses. I mean, Abraham married his half-sister, right? He married his half-sister, but it wasn't forbidden then. It was only forbidden when Moses puts the law in. So that's what a lot of the, 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 the creation scientists will say is that, look, you had good genes going on at that time. And then by the time, uh, you know, get to Moses, breaking down. And of course, our time, the, the genes are really, really bad, apparently. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, I think I read a report now, and I don't know why all, what all the factors are in, that actually people are not living longer as long as they used to in America. 
And that could be from all kinds of different factors or whatnot. But back to you, you have to blame that on the fall. That's where to target your fall at. I'm sorry, your blame at is to the fall, not you, not to God, because that's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to either have you blame God or you blame yourself for it. That you did something wrong, Valerie, that it's the chemicals and you killed your baby or something. That's, not, that's what Satan would try to put in your head because he wants to just crush you. But the story is, it's the fall. And that's why we have infant mortality. That's why we have children that die and get cancers and, and, and uh, aneurysms and tumors and stuff. It's horrible to see that. But what you're watching is the ravages of the fall. The reason you're getting older is not, not simply, just simply because of your gen genetics. It's simply the fall affecting you as well. It's, it, we're cursed. The whole thing, the whole human population is physically cursed. So I hope that helps you. And you just need to dump that self-blame right now. Just dump it. That's not, that has nothing to do with you, man. Nothing to do with you. Oh, okay. Where am I at? Back there. Go ahead. So we got an online question. It's uh, why should Satan be allowed to accuse us if Jesus said it is finished? True, because we're dealing, because when he's accusing us, it's not an accusation that we don't have li uh, eternal life, because he does, we do. It's the accusation that we're not living right for the Lord. That's what the accusation is geared towards. So if you don't want to be accused, then live right. But look, let's go back to... Um, Zechariah chapter three, I think. And Satan is accusing Israel. Do you remember that? Where he actually accuses the high priest? You remember that? Yeah, Zechariah chapter three. If you, if you want to just turn there, that's fine. If not, just listen. Um, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is who? That's Messiah, it's Jesus, right? The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Messiah. So Jesus is standing there, right? And Satan's standing at his right hand to oppose him. So get the picture. You have the high priest Joshua in that day this is post-exilic, okay? Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. So they come back to rebuild Israel, okay? So you have Zach, uh, sorry, um, the high priest Joshua in that day standing there. You have Jesus standing there. And then you have Satan standing there accusing Joshua the high priest. Well, in this, pa this passage, Joshua the high priest represents all of Israel, the whole nation, Okay? to oppose him. And the, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, what would that be a reference to? A brand plucked out of the fire. This is a remnant believer that has been plucked out of the fire. The fire is for those who are unbelievers, but again, the context is Israel, okay? 
The reason they were sent into the Babylonian exile is because the unremnant was doing such debauched and debased things in idolatry that didn't survive. Many of them were slaughtered. Again, the exile happened. But a branch plucked out of the fire is a remnant group that really believes and now have been allowed to go back into Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's a big deal. So Satan is saying they don't have the right to rebuild the temple and anything. Why is that a threat to Satan to have Israel in control of the temple mount? Why is that a threat? The prophets predict that Messiah will rule from there. In order for him to rule, then say, uh, sorry, Israel must be in control of the Temple Mount. Okay. Again, th- this is Zechariah. It's a post-exilic prophet. So it's after the Babylonian exile, okay? So you have to have the Babylonian exile in your mind when you're reading Zechariah 3. Okay. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, notice the conditional, if, you see the conditional in Zechariah? If. So it, does, it means that if you do this, okay? If you walk in my ways, and if, conditional, you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge over my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these who stand there. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, For they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth who? My servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon that stone are seven eyes. Omniscience, okay? Who's the stone? The stone has omniscience. It's Jesus. Behold, I will engrave its inscription says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day into the future. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Messianic age is what that refers to. So what's the point in this? What's, what's, what's being used here? The accusation is against Israel, that Israel has sinned so far that they, they cannot be used again, okay? So they, they deserve fire, judgment. And he says, ah, no, 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 no. There's been a remnant that hasn't polluted themselves. There's a remnant that still believes. So this remnant then is projected into the future, as you can see, because it's predicting the Messiah, but then it also predicts the Messianic age. And that in that Messianic age, it is saying, um, Behold, I will engrave its inscription and, and, and remove its iniquity in the land one day. That's, that one day is when Israel gets saved in the future at, in the end of the tribulation, right? And um, oh, but the stone. Uh, oh, 
when you go back up to verse, what is that, seven? Yes. Okay, verse seven. Then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge over my courts. And well, this is talking about the Israeli government in the Messianic age of being the head of the nations and not the tail. Okay. So in this accusation, to understand accusations, what is Satan trying to say about Israel? They're finished. All that's left for you is to judge them. But he says, no, my servant is coming and my servant will redeem them. And it will always be a remnant of a branch that, that, that uh, is plucked from the fire. And, and hence, you cannot accuse them at this time and nor will you be able to accuse them at that time because I will make a way for them. Not only in salvation, but in preservation of their life. Because what happens when Israel gets saved? They then call on Messiah to save them physically. And then that's what the second coming is about, is to rescue Israel physically. Okay? So they're, they're, you can see in this category of accusation, what would he say about you in this kind of category? That you have sinned so bad, then God, you can't ever use them again. You see what I'm saying? On a personal level, they have messed up their life so bad, they can never be used again. But what's the answer? My servant is coming. In our situation, the servant has come. And he makes us fit to serve. So even if we've messed up things, the servant, we can become a prodigal son and return home is the idea and be reestablished. That's the idea. And so Satan is going gonna, is gonna to accuse you when you really mess up. You can't be used anymore. Sit it out. Don't get back involved. And that's the idea. That's the third category of accusation. And you can't buy that lie. Okay, where am I going with a hand? Yes, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, <clears throat> would this uh, go with your family as you are the remnant, the ones that are saved, and if you have family members not saved, God will see that your righteousness, he would look on your family to make a way for your family to, like he does with Israel, with their remnant. We could be the remnants of our family that are trying to get favor from God to, for our family. Yeah, and, and the scripture you're referring to then is um, that, the, that the parents of the house uh, sanctify the whole household. Remember that passage? It's in, in 1 Corinthians. So it, it's talk, uh, 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter seven, right? You're, so you, Paul, you're hitting on a good good uh, point. Let me see if I can find the passage specifically. God determined it's so hard to get in the marriage as well. Let's see if I can get it. That's a long chapter. I can't remember the verse, but it's in here. 
Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm still having trouble seeing that. That's 20 font. Gosh. Verse, it's chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, and then, um, is that 14 or 16? I can't. 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. There's a passage that you're referring to. Now, what, what does it mean? That if there's believers in the home, they sanctify the entire house. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, that's not talking about sanctification in our process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctification in that context means the believer sets apart his family. His family is set apart because there's a believer in the family. But what does that afford the family with? Certain amount of protection. Certain amount of protection from the evil one, okay? And so if there's one believer in the house, it does protect the family to some degree. Now, uh, in part of that protection, it also provides an environment that makes it more conducive for those relatives to get saved in that environment because there's a believer there. There's a believer there in the midst of that. And so a lot of times the, it, the believer in their families is like a ministry of presence. It's not that you even have to witness to them because I'm sure you witnessed to them a thousand times and don't listen to you. But the issue is that you're there. It's the ministry of presence and at some point, they're going to turn to you if they, they land flat on their back or whatever, and they want to know the Lord, you're the person they go to. Now, what I'll say about this is, this is interesting. So in my own personal family, um, we grew up Catholic, um, but I became the first one to be saved on both sides of my family. And what I have seen to this very day is that I have led to the Lord almost all of them. Through, through different points of their life. And I mean, we're talking about a span of from age 19 to I'm nearly 50. But through the course of those times, I've, I've led all of my uncles, all of my aunts, um, yeah, on both sides. Um, and, and, and my and grandparents. So what did that show me? It shows me that God will start a work in a particular family and he will use that believer to affect the entire family. Now, here's the funny thing is they won't like you at first, okay? They won't like you. They don't like you at all. I mean, I, I took the most heat when I got saved because I was leaving the Catholic church. You know, how could you do this to us? You know, we raised you like this. What are you, in some cult? And, you know, that kind of thing. So, but I end up, years later, leaning the Lord, and a lot of them, believe it or not, on their deathbeds, on their deathbeds, because they had waited that long to make that decision. But when I walked into the room, the door was open, and they were ready. So, so back to you, Paul. This is what the remnant can do. This is the influence of a remnant believer. Now, if you have your spouse as a believer too, that's very, very powerful very powerful in your family. Now, they might think you're crazy and a nut job. The day will come when God will put, you, put them on their back, okay? Now, it's not a guarantee that they'll come to faith, but when people start having health issues that look like it's the end and, hey, this is not gonna work, it wakes them up, and there you are. 
and there you are. And so what you start realizing is what really your mission field was, was your family. He plucked you out of the fire first, and you got saved, and then used you to affect everyone else. Yes? Is that similar to what Rahab did? Yeah, in a lot of ways, um, she was plucked out of Jericho, right? Because she believed, she heard the news about God. And so um, I'm sure Rahab had a lot of influence in that area. And so that's what starts happening. One person gets saved and then it starts affecting everybody. And that's the power uh, that you don't realize that you have. It's just simply ministry of presence. And just you behaving, right? And you and living right and doing right year after year after year is a powerful witness to people. And you'll be, you'll, you know, it doesn't come until later in life, but you got to start it, right? So yeah, it's a, a perfect example of her when she, what she did. Any other things before we move on? Yeah, go ahead, Gabriel. Uh, someone had a question regarding the millennium kingdom and the relationship with the father. Okay, in, in essence of, so how will, the, how will our relationship be like with the Father during the millennium? Okay, well, definitely it's closer. There's no doubt about that because we're glorified. And in that glorification that we can be in the actually presence of God. So Revelation 22 says that we will see God face to face. You actually see God in his essence and not be blinded by it. And that's where the glorified body is necessitated in order to see God face to face like that. That is a promise in Revelation chapter 22. Um, so your relationship to the Father and to Jesus and the Holy Spirit will be close as, 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 as possible, and it will never end uh, that closeness. Um, that's why, you know, you'll be able to walk, so to speak, in the cool of the day with the Lord. You'll be able to fellowship with him with perfect harmony and, and perfect connection. And um, even if God sends you on a mission to go somewhere in the universe to do whatever, you're still close to him. You're ne- there's, the physical distance doesn't separate you. And so um, it's an amazing thing to think about, but it's a closer relationship than what you actually have now, which we should expect with a glorified body. So anyway, any questions? Okay. Um, okay, so the accusations then are in three categories, as you can see. He won't serve you. He's in sin, or she's in sin, either way. And the other one is, they can't be used again. Now, here's the funny thing. That thing about can't be used again, that's exactly what the church thinks. The majority of the church thinks about Israel today, that they're done, right? Replacement theology, can't use Israel again. And because Zechariah, that passage is telling all of us, oh, he can use Israel again, and he will because of what the branch did. The branch made it possible, not only for your salvation, but the salvation of the remnant of Israel to become a nation again and then lead into the Messianic kingdom. So here's a great thing. When you study Israel, and I, I admonish all of you to do uh, Israelology if you get a chance. The study of Israel as a corporate body is a study of yourself because that's what's being carried over. As you look and you learn about corporate Israel, you will learn about yourself as a believer. 
And what they go through, you go through. What God does for them, he does for you. It's, it's, it's an amazing tale of, of our personal lives with the nation of Israel. So that's why it's imperative to know the history of Israel and the ups and downs, the high points, the low points, because it's a history of you. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Okay, any other questions before we stop? Take a break. All good? Okay, let's take a break. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.